0: Now, as the Lord would help us, friends, let us turn to Genesis 22. Genesis 22, and um, you can take for a reference the words of verse 10 and Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. We are now moving from our morning study of isaac the promised child in genesis 15 to isaac the sacrificial lamb as it were here in chapter 22. now this incident is often likened to god offering his son on the cross of calvary now there are undoubtedly certain parallels between the two stories, but they are really quite different. This story is about the testing of a man's faith. Calvary wasn't about testing anybody's faith. It was about saving us from our sins. Meanwhile, making this incident particularly profound is the background that we considered in the morning. Isaac wasn't just Abraham and Sarah's son. He was, on one hand, born by supernatural intervention. And on the other hand, he was to be the son of covenant promise, representing every believer. Galatians 4, verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of God's. Now, most people familiar with Christianity, if they are at all sympathetic to our religion, they will consider it usually relative to issues that are frequently emphasized in the gospel, such as love and kindness and good works and issues of that nature. Now, of course, all of that is true. These are essential components of the gospel story, but these things alone will give you a very superficial view of what Christianity is all about. Our religion, my friends, is the most serious and the most profound on the face of the earth because it places God Almighty at the very heart of everything we say, everything we do, and everything we believe. And furthermore, it places the Lord Jesus Christ to the fore of all our hopes and all our expectations. And it places the Holy Spirit in the vanguard of all our activity. Which means, of course, that Christianity is a Trinitarian religion, unashamedly so. Now, the most important component of our religion, from a human perspective at least, is faith. Because we read in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, without faith it is impossible, impossible to please God. We should take careful note of these words, my friends. Because if we cannot please God, we are lost. We are lost, my friends. There's no two ways about it. And you cannot please him without this faith. Now, this isn't the faith that you will find in Judaism. It's not the faith that you will find in the Islamic religion. It's not the faith that you will find in Hinduism or any other religion in this world. The faith of of those religions, that's just intellectual assent to the claims made by those religions. Whereas our faith, Christian faith, that is, that's a gift from God. A gift from God. And it certainly involves our intellect, but it also requires implicit and explicit trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And furthermore, Christian faith can be great or it can be small. It can be tested and it can be tried, as we shall see here this evening. Because tested faith is the focus of this story. Now, there are many examples of God insisting on faith being tested throughout the Bible and throughout Christian church history. Many, many examples. Two of the best in the Bible, that is, occurred, interestingly, very early on in the piece of Christian history. And it's as if God was saying, here's how it must be for my people. From the get-go, your faith must be tested in one way or another, to some degree or other. Now, these two examples I'm thinking of, first one would be Job, who lived, who was a a contemporary, we believe, from commentators of Abraham, at least he, he, he lived round about that time. And the second is this man himself, Abraham, in offering up of Isaac. However, like many other aspects of biblical narrative, we have to study this story carefully so that we can appreciate all its nuances, the ins and outs of things, perhaps. We don't notice at a cursory reading of the story itself. So let's look, first of all, this evening at God preparing Abraham for his testing. Now, in verse 1, we read that God tempted Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, behold, here I am. Now, notice that word tempting. It's not Tempting in the way that we are tempted to sin, that's not what this word means. It's much more suitable to translate it as testing rather than attempting. But in any case, Abraham doesn't hesitate when God calls him. Behold, he said, here I am. That's what faith does. Always. That's what faith does. It immediately obeys God whatever the task might be. Now, these two terms, faith and obedience, they always go together. They have to go together. They must go together like a hand in a glove. And then God fired an arrow straight at Abraham's heart. Take this verse 2. Take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest, Now, notice how God is stressing the uniqueness of this child, thy son. I don't want you to take Eliezer, the servant. Oh, no, I don't want him. Take thy son, thine only son, that son whom thou lovest. As many of you know, parental love goes incredibly deep. In our hearts. And that's intensified. I think. When special circumstances. Are involved. Regarding our children. And by children. I don't mean little boys or girls. Our children can be in their 20s. And 30s and 40s. And if anything we love them more than ever. Isaac. Isaac wasn't born when God promised him that he would have a child. No, it took 25 years, as we saw in the morning, before this child appeared in the scene of time. And now here's his father, over 100 years old, and he considers himself, according to Romans 4, as we saw in the morning, to be over the hill, to use a phrase. Now, the significance of this child Isaac is marked out in numerous ways. For example, this is how the New Testament is introduced to us. The New Testament isn't introduced with a reference to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden at the dawn of history. Oh, no. Matthew 1, verse 2 Abraham begat Isaac. It's introduced to us. Through this father and son. any case, God commands him. In verse 2. Get thee into the land of Moriah. Notice that word. Moriah. It's a word that means chosen of God. Now we have to take that with us. As we go through. No one at that time. Realized. The significance of that word and of that location, that geographic location. A thousand years later, we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Moriah, in Mount Moriah. But that wasn't the full significance of this location. A thousand years after Solomon, men would erect a cross in the vicinity of Moriah, the place chosen by God. In what well, God's next words would I believe have broken lesser men? End of verse 2. Offer him for a burnt offering... On one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Now, my friends, remember, this is the God who has already made the killing of human beings a cardinal sin. That wasn't stated by God in the Ten Commandments for the first time. Oh, no, my friends. God claimed this. Immediately after the renewal of the flood. Genesis chapter 9. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Killing a man is a cardinal sin, God will say. Thou shalt not kill. And that, my friends, is written on every human heart, including Abraham's heart. Romans chapter 2. People show the work of the law written in their hearts, thus referring to the teaching of the Ten Commandments. It's impressed upon the soul and mind and heart of each individual as they come into this world, whether they realize it or not. That's the basis of civility and decency in the world. So how can God now demand this of Abraham? Kill him. And not only that, kill him in the most horrendous way. You see, a burnt offering in Israel meant, first of all, Cutting the throat of the victim. And secondly, quartering the carcass of the victim. And thirdly, burning it all to ashes. Unthinkable. But there it is. Offer them for a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. You know, friends, from a human perspective, what God sometimes expects can seem so totally unreasonable, so totally downright cruel, And I say that with all due respect. Ask any parent that's lost a child. Ask anyone left to watch a loved one's life crumbling to a degenerative disease. Sometimes God's providence can be so cruel, my friends, and so hard. And stretching this further still. God deliberately reminds this father, your son, your only son, Isaac, the son you love. Deliberately stressing the uniqueness of this boy to his father. And not only so, but according to God's plan subsequent generations depended on this boy growing up for more still. I'm not sure how old he would have been here, perhaps late teens or something like that. But God's plan depended on him marrying and having children. And here's God demanding of Abraham to kill him. Oh, like Job, my friends, and many others as well. Abraham must have found God's ways at times baffling, scary, and beyond the pale. You know, friends, it's easy to think of this story in terms of what we read in Hebrews 11. That God was going to raise this boy from the dead in any case. It's easy to think of it like that. Blocking out the horrible side of it and only seeing the nice and positive side of it. This father, my friends, had first of all to deal with this issue. He, as a father, contemplating killing his own son. And his great faith should not blind us to the pain. And the turmoil and the confusion, which must have been initially in Abram's mind, hearing all this and realizing what was being asked of him. It's painful enough to lose a child by any means. So this prospect, my friends, and the details required, this is stuff of nightmares for any parent. But, nevertheless, that's sometimes how God's providence works for some believers. However, when we trust in God, my friends, when we trust in him explicitly and implicitly, there is a strange comfort in knowing that God knows the end from the beginning a strange comfort in that realization even if that reality wasn't altogether clear to Abraham initially nevertheless I believe it would have upheld him as he made his journey to Moriah because that's what faith plus trust means we continue on Even when the mind and the brain are in a fog of confusion, we must continue on. And it's not in our own strength. The love of Christ constrains us. He brings us on. He makes us conquerors and overcomers, even over our own confusion. Let me move secondly to Abraham preparing for Moriah. Verse three, Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass. And the two servants who were with him and Isaac, they never asked any questions. At least there's nothing recorded. And as they watched Abraham splitting that wound, verse three, for the burnt offering, never say a word. And evidently he didn't tell them. He didn't tell anyone, as far as I can see their destination, or why they were going there. And you know, sometimes, my friends, being a Christian can be a lonely experience. Sometimes we are given certain burdens that we have to bear alone. We can't share them with anyone. But nevertheless... We must keep on keeping on. As I said of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 50. And who carried a burden like him? Who understood his burden? I set my face like a flint. And I know I will not be ashamed. So we read in verse 3. Abraham rose up and went to the place which God had told him. That, my friends, is where the believer must always be found, where God has commanded us to be, on the way of obedience and on the highway of holiness. That's where the Christian must always be found. So the first day passed, and the night, and the second day passed, And the night, and they traveled on. Now, whatever Isaac and the servants were thinking, it's easy to imagine what Abraham was thinking. You see, he could envisage it all. This would have made it even worse. We know that because faith is the evidence of things not seen. He could envisage it all. And it took three days before Abraham lifted up his eyes, according to verse 4, lifted, off his, lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. This was a journey, my friends, no believer would want to make. What went through Abraham's mind during those days doesn't bear thinking about. And I would suggest to you, That these three days and three nights were as calculated as the three years of our Lord's ministry and as the three days he spent in the grave. None of this is by happenstance. It was all designed in this instance to strengthen this man's faith. Now, I would also suggest to you that this is where the testing took place. Not on Moriah, but during those three days and three nights. This is where the test, in the turmoil of Abraham's mind, day and night, this is where the test took place. How else could it be for a father contemplating killing his son? And even the one of perfect faith the Lord Jesus Christ was put through this same turmoil, or should I say a similar turmoil? Hebrews 5, verse 7. This is the interpretation of the writer to the Hebrews of the Gethsemane incident. He offered prayers and supplications, but not ordinary prayers, not ordinary supplications with strong cries and tears. Whereas Abraham's turmoil was born in silence, not a single word is recorded from the time they left their home till they reached the foothills of Moriah. Not a word. But you know, my friends, Silence sometimes speaks volumes, volumes. All those hours, day and night, this mind, this man's mind would have churned over these matters over and over and over again. Isn't that what we do when we are in a dilemma? Isn't that what we do? I believe he would have asked a thousand and one questions. I believe he would have mulled over a thousand and one possibilities and all of it in silent fellowship with God. So for three days and three nights, Abraham and God conducted this secret business between them. And at every turn, I believe that God would have answered his every question. And that God would have satisfied his every query. Isn't that what we see with the apostle? When he wrestled in prayer with God over this thorn in the flesh, again and again and again, and again and again, the answer came. My grace is sufficient for thee. So events that followed Moriah, in my understanding of the story, these events are the outcome, the outworking of this trial of his faith during those three days and three nights. In other words, this was Abraham being put through what the Bible calls the furnace of affliction. The furnace mm-hmm. of affliction. And God puts his people through that furnace sometimes. He doesn't put all the, all his people through it, but the ones that have to go through that furnace, they go through it for a deliberate reason. Because God is working to a plan, and here's the result of being put through the furnace of affliction. In Zechariah chapter 13, I will refine them as silver is refined. That's the whole purpose of the furnace of affliction. And that's exactly what happened to this man. He was refined as silver is refined. And that's why, my friends, secret prayer is so important To ourselves, especially when we are facing the dilemmas and challenges of life. Oh, enter into that closet. Enter into that secret fellowship with God. Pour out your heart before him, which is, I believe, what this man was doing. That's what keeps Christians from going to pieces. When we're in dire straits. And furthermore. When we do conduct our secret business with God in this way. What will he give us? How will he answer us? The same as he answered the apostle. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. Let me look thirdly. And Abraham offering Isaac, verse 10. Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now, as they approached Moriah, Abraham did as Jesus did prior to climbing the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember how he left all the rest of them, taking with them only Peter, James, and John. So Abraham said to the servant, verse 5, Abide ye here with the ass. In other words... This is not for you. You cannot understand what's going to happen up here. You stay here. This is not for you. And then we see the first sign of how great this man's faith was. Verse 5 again. Notice these words. They're absolutely astonishing. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. How incredible is that? Here he is, about to kill his son, and he's calling it worship. I and the lad will go yonder and worship. And not only so, but he was also by now confident of the outcome. will come again to you. He wasn't going to come back down from Mariah on his own. He was going to come back down with Isaac. So father and son set out, Isaac carrying the wood, and Abraham carrying the fire and the knife. And we read these pathetic words, the end of verse 6. They went, both of them, together. Now, isn't it odd, my friends, that there's no reference here? To Isaac's faith. No reference at all. We know he had faith. In fact his faith is commended in Hebrews chapter 11. But there's no word of his faith here. Why is that do you think? Well I think it's perhaps because. He evidently didn't fully understand what was going on here. Verse 7. Behold the fire and the wood. But where's the lamb? Father burnt offering. And then he heard his father's amazing reply: "Mercy, God will provide Himself, Allah." And then, next to the events at Calvary, there's the most solemn and profound scenes in all of Scripture. Abraham building this altar slowly and carefully and setting upon it the wood and then this verse 9 he bound isaac's son and laid him on the altar or pause over these words my friends he bound isaac's son and laid him On the altar. Can you imagine. The turmoil of this man's. In this man's mind. And the confusion in his heart. Oh I know. He's being obedient. And I know that he has great faith. And I know that he knows. God knows the end from the beginning. I know all of that. But surely my friends. We must also see. The pain in this father's heart as he tied his son to that altar. Surely we can see the anguish of the soul knowing what he was going to do. Even if he did believe that God was going to raise him from the dead. How could he, a loving father, plunge that knife into his son? He would need a heart of stone not to feel pain and agony and anguish. And we would need a heart of stone not to see that pain and agony and anguish in this father's heart and mind. And this was likely made worse if Isaac didn't understand what was happening. Can you imagine Abraham looking down? into the confused eyes of Isaac. Doesn't bear thinking about my friends. And sometimes believers must obey God even if their own heart is broken. Even when their mind is in turmoil. Even when their eyes are filled with tears. We must obey God. Every parent of prodigal sons and daughters Mm -hmm. know exactly what that is like. Meanwhile, in raising that knife, God knew then that Abraham had passed the test. He knew that Abraham would do it. And for God, that was the equivalent of a sacrifice. Hebrews 11 again. We read, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. You see, he had done it in his heart. He was prepared to do it physically. That was good enough for God. The sacrifice had been offered. And he would have done it because, my friends, of his confidence in the God of the impossible. As we read in Hebrews 11, he reckoned God was able to raise him up even from the dead. But instantly, the whole scene changed when God sent an angel from heaven and called out to Abraham, verse 12, Lay not thine hand upon the Lord. (coughs) God saw the sincerity of this man's heart. And the angel's words must have been music to Abraham's ears. Lay not thine hand upon the land. However, a sacrifice still had to be offered. And that's evident from what follows. Verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw a ram caught in a thicket by his horn. We have a saying in Gaelic, He wouldn't just have run over to this ram, he would have bounded over to this ram and caught him. And we can see, my friends, through the eye of faith, how gladly Abraham took that ram and sacrificed him as a substitute for his own son. What joy, what joy must have filled Abraham's heart. Now, my friends, as I bring this to a conclusion, isn't that what Calvary ought to mean to all of us? Shouldn't our hearts be filled with joy in that God showed himself to be Jehovah Jireh, He provided for himself a lamb, a sacrificial lamb, a substitute. A substitute for what? Or should I say, a substitute for who? For you, for me. A substitute for sinners. He provided himself a lamb, my friends. Behold the lamb of God. Who taketh away the sin of the world. This is where he took away that sin. On the cross of Calvary. And our substitute lamb, my friends, wasn't a dumb animal. It was the very son of God. And remember how that son is described for us. That well-known verse, John 3.16. And notice the similarity between John 3.16 and the description of Isaac in verse 2 of this chapter. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his only begotten son, but whomsoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, if we admire, my friends, the father and the son of this story, how much more should we admire and love and believe and worship the father and son of Calvary? How much more? And can you say, sitting here in the Stormway Church tonight, that you are amongst those that do look to Calvary in this regard. And that you admire and love and believe and worship the Father and the Son, what took place. In your Roman's dead. On the cross of Calvary. Can you say that? Are you confident in that? Do you cherish that thought in your heart? Is that what you're going to be thinking about. When you go to sleep tonight? Oh my friends. The Calvary story. Is infinitely greater. Than the story of Moriah. The place. Chosen of God. Let us pray. We thank thee, gracious God, for this wonderful story of thy word and help us to see beyond the historical narrative and to recognize in this story the greater story of the father giving the son, the substitute lamb, that would die in the room instead of sinners. Help us, Lord, to understand that, to the saving of our souls, and help us to worship him, to adore him, to praise him, even this very Sabbath evening. Have mercy upon us. For his name's sake, amen.